All right, that was a quick little rest pause. Um, we are going to dive right in to our uh, next panel. I can't believe we're still going. This is just great. I'm loving everything I'm hearing. So uh, our next panel is We Keep Us Safe, Organizing Toward Abolition. And I will bring Millie forward. Hi. Uh, welcome to We Keep Us Safe, Organizing Towards Abolition. I will open this up and then we will do a go round and allow our panelists to introduce themselves. My name is Millie Harmon. I use the pronouns they, she. I'm joining today. Currently reside and grew up on stolen and occupied Yavapai and Apache land called Arizona. I am, or Central Arizona, excuse me. I am one of the national co-directors of the Move to Amend Coalition. And I wanna take a moment uh, to start by tipping my hat and really expressing my gracious soul to Pride Month and all the radical queer and trans organizers whose work carved pathways of resistance and proved solidarity organizing is the only way we can create a world we deserve. We know prisons create violence and attempt to eat up those, those that capitalism marginalize and police enforce and perpetuate that violence. Queerness exists outside the confines of what is deemed acceptable to the point that 48% of LGBTQ plus victims of violence report police misconduct. Almost one in two black trans people have spent time in prison, frequently as punishment for crimes of survival. Queer people are also at greater risk of experiencing homelessness, extreme poverty, sexual assault, inmate partner violence, and all of the violent conditions that lead to encounters with police and the prison industrial complex. These statistics exist without consideration of ICE and migrant detention. Abolition gives us an opportunity to examine the lies we have been told about what justice looks like and take active steps towards unlearning and rebuilding. Some of us are not surviving this world, which seeks to disappear marginalized people through the prison and through prison and police violence. And so abolition must be central to any movement for liberation, which is why I'm so thrilled to kick off this panel and now bring on the fantastic panelists we have lined up for you. Um, I'll need my help, my tech help here. I wanna bring on uh, Zoya, allow you to introduce yourself. If you're here. Or if we could just bring on all the panelists at the same time, then we'll do a go round. Perfect. Oh, here's Zoya. Perfect. Welcome. Hi. Uh, sorry, I'm having some <laughs> technical issues. <laughs> no can you worries. hear me now? Yeah, we can. Just a, okay, a quick awesome. introduction of yourself. We're going to dig deeper into um the the rest of the program after this uh so my name is zoya um i'm a co-founder of 10 demands 
with Awkward, who couldn't be here today, and a lot of other awesome people like Patronus, Cheyenne, and, um, and we got together about two years ago during the George Floyd protests uh, to use uh, all of this momentum and energy we had in the streets and come up with a coherent road to abolition through a list of demands uh, that outline actual policies that we can start to implement even today and slowly reduce the power of the police state un until it's defunded to zero. Um, our website is tentforjustice.com. It's filled with resources. If you want to learn more about abolition, what does it look like? What does it entail? There are also actions you can directly take from there. Um, and the other person that co-founded Attend Demands, uh, Nick, is also here with us today. Hello, uh, I co-founded Attend Demands with Nick. I am uh, Nick. A lot of people know me as Socialist MA on Twitter. I also co-founded uh, Revolutionary Blackout. We are a network on YouTube where we discuss abolition. I believe that tackling the police state should be one of our, our number one priorities, especially when you look at what is going on right now when you have Roe v. Wade protesters and you see the police first response is to crack down on them and use violence. So we have to view the police and the police state that we are living in as an arm of the capitalist class that is meant to oppress us. So the first step for our liberation is to oppose the police state so we can really start making gains for the working class. So uh, that's why I co-founded Tender Man with Doya and I continue to do uh, advocacy work on behalf of abolition, so. Great, thank you so much, Nick. Um, and if one of the, someone on the tech team will go ahead and spotlight Nick C there. Um, I next want to uh, invite Nikki. Sure. Uh, hey, y'all. Glad to be here. Appreciate this gathering. Uh, my name is Nikki. I'm an organizer uh, here on stolen Valley Miwok uh, people's land in the Nisanon um, people, and we call it Sacramento. Um, and I'm an outreach worker uh, for like eight years and an organizer um, and founding member of Decarcerate Sacramento, which is a local uh, abolitionist organization. We work to um, stop all expansions and new construction um, of jails here in Sacramento County, as well as significantly reduce the jail population um, and work to reinvest those dollars into community. Um, if I would be remiss without talking about Mental Health First, which is the other organization that I'm a part of um, co-creating here in Sacramento. We launched in uh, January of 2020 um, as an alternative crisis response team um, as a project of the Anti-Police Terror Project. So also uh, an abolitionist formation um, working to um, fill the gaps that our uh, world has created for us and just give good care to one another uh, until the police are obsolete. Love it. Thank you so much. Uh, I next want to uh, welcome Alex. 
into this virtual room. Thank you so much. Can you hear me okay? Awesome, thanks. Hi, my name is Alex. I use he or they pronouns. I'm located on occupied Ohlone territory, also known as Oakland, California, not too far from Nikki. Um, and I am a chapter member of the Oakland chapter of Critical Resistance, which is a national organization uh, that has five chapters uh, in various cities, uh, Portland, Los Angeles, New York, and um, also a national chapter in Oakland. Um, so that the national chapter for at-large folks. And um, yeah, really excited to be here. Um, it's great to see such a big crowd on such a uh, you know uh, huge weekend with a lot of other things going on. So when I came in, it looked like y'all were already deep in it and continuing to go. So really excited for this conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for being here. Um, okay, do we have everyone in the room? All right, I think so. So let's jump uh, in. Hi, uh, I'm Rebecca with Bold Editing. Oh, no, we haven't. So sorry. I'm... Can y'all bring her in? Hey. Thanks so much. Thank Welcome, you. Rebecca. Um, Hi, I'm Rebecca Denis. I work with Bullet in Action on what is um, the stolen land of the Peeposh, specifically the Akamel Autumn peoples uh, here in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, Bullet in Action's mission is to disrupt, um, dismantle, and deter well, disrupt and dismantle um, the systems of oppression um, that affect our community, specifically BIPOC, working class. Um, people here in Arizona, immigrants, and um, our main goal is to work together to determine a new world rooted in abolitionist values. And um, a lot of our work um, is driven and focused on the intersection of ICE and police and what we call the polimigra. Um, and I'll probably talk about that more later. And yeah, that's me. Oh, I use she, her pronouns. Wonderful, thank you, and I apologize uh, for not getting you in the first. I Okay, let's get into it. Um, I'd love for us all to do a go-round by giving us a working definition of abolition and what it means to you. Please explain the strategy and scope of your work within the organization that you are representing and how its mission aligns with creating community safety and building alternative systems. Rebecca, do you mind if we begin with you? Sure, I, I do not mind. <laughs> um, so yes, so Bullet in Action's like understanding of abolition is very much rooted um, in the, the building of this framework, right? And the labor of black abolitionists, like specifically queer and femme people like Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and also the work of critical resistance. Um, we, as an organization, we understand abolition as the dismantling of the criminal injustice system, which includes policing, prisons, um, immigration enforcement, the tangle of racist policies and practices, right, that allow for harassment and surveillance, hunting, and the tearing apart of Black and Indigenous um, communities, and in general, just communities of color. Um, we understand that it's not just about dismantling these institutions or these physical entities um, that 
exist in the criminal justice system. So like police departments, like detention centers, but really like shifting away our cultural reliance and our understanding of safety on these institutions um, and really thinking through what does safety mean to us? How do we create that safety um, as a collective group of people? Um, and so that is our process, um, that three-tiered process that we take of disrupting while at the same time trying to figure out how we dismantle and on the back end thinking through what is determining our own liberation look like and not just liberation for us because if liberating one group of people um, at the cost of another group of people is not true liberation and it's not really the values of abolition. Um, and so our goal really is what can we do for Black, Indigenous, communities of color, working class people? It's not just about living, it's not just about surviving, but it's about thriving. Um, and it's about having like happy, joyful, healthy lives. And what does that mean? Like that is safety for us. Um, and so I'll just leave it at that and pass it on to the next person. Thank you so much. I can really appreciate that. Uh, Alex, can we go to you next? Thank you so much. I'm so excited to learn from everyone in this, in this group. Um, so the critical resistance um, kind of short definition of abolition of the prison industrial complex or PIC is, as I'll refer to it from here on out, um, is that abolition is a political vision with the goal of eliminating imprisonment, policing, and surveillance. Um, so what we definitely want to always include that surveillance piece and creating lasting alternatives to punishment and imprisonment. Um, so from where we are now, sometimes we can't really imagine what abolition is going to look like. Um, abolition isn't just about getting rid of the buildings, as, as um, Rebecca said, um, you know, getting rid of the buildings full of cages. It's also about undoing the society we live in because the PIC both feeds on and maintains oppression and inequalities through punishment, violence, um, and it controls millions of people. Because the PIC is not an isolated system, abolition is a broad strategy. So an abolitionist vision means that we must build models today that can represent how we want to live in the future. Um, it means developing practical strategies for taking small steps to move us in, toward making our dreams real um, and that lead us all to believe things really could be different. It means living um, a vision in our daily lives, uh, li uh, living this vision in our daily lives. So abolition is both a practical organizing tool and a long-term goal. Um, as you can see, so the way I visualize this is that, um, you know, abolition is this really uh, broad and ambitious horizon, um, but abolition is also the tools to carve out a clear path towards that horizon. Um, so in terms of abolition, CR does use uh, a similar framework uh, for our theory of change, which is dismantle, change, and build. And I know this, the question, the conversation is, is definitely about alternatives. Um, but as Rebecca kind of said, the, um, that that building piece, the alternative building has to coexist with the dismantling and the kind of changing of, um, you know, common sense, changing of our conditions. Um, uh, but on the, the topic of alternatives, um, Critical Resistance is a political organization that works on campaigns uh, within coalitions to help uh, chip away at the PIC. Um, so with alternative systems, we've had in the past take up uh, projects um, like the Oakland Power Projects, where we engaged Oakland residents in building community power to reject policing as a default response to harm by working with residents and organizations to highlight 
um, or create alternatives that actually work. Uh, we did this by uh, uh, connecting with communities and facilitating a three-step process of identifying current harms, amplifying existing resources, and developing new practices that do not rely on policing or law enforcement. And the kind of precursor to Oakland Power Projects was actually um, uh, this, this, this uh, pro uh, project called STOP, uh, which is short for Storytelling and Organizing Project, which was really held down by, um, um, uh, it's like it was a national, or it was an international uh, project that collected stories from around the world, um, uh, uh, listening to folks and how they deal with interpersonal harm without relying on policing. Um, or child protective services. And then um, they had arranged listening sessions and um, the stories I still, I think are still live online. Um, this is like around 2009. Um, so yeah, uh, at the moment, the Oakland chapter's main campaign is working with uh, a statewide coalition called Californians United for Responsible Budget or CURB, uh, in, specifically in the prison closure work group. Um, and this campaign is really focused on getting our governor to commit to close uh, following through on closing 10 state prisons by 2025. So at this moment in time, you can see it's definitely on the dismantle piece right now, but um, of course we're doing the other two pieces of changing and building at the same time. So looking forward to talking more about that later. Thanks. And I do wanna take a moment to remind everybody every, all of the resources mentioned, um, including um, websites, and uh, ways to donate, uh, cash apps, we're gonna be compiling um, during this program and we're going to provide afterwards. So don't worry about catching all those links and ways to hook in further after this. I also just wanna go over the question really fast. We've have several more folks join, um, but please lay out a working definition of abolition and what it means to you. Explain the strategy and scope of your work within the organization you are representing and how its mission aligns with creating community safety and building alternative, uh, alternative systems. I'd like to next turn it over to Zoya. Hi, uh, so thank you for rereading that question. Um, I don't want to uh, go into things that people already covered, but my favorite way of explaining it to people is that rather than just asking for the police to be defunded, it, what we're asking is for society to be funded. Currently, uh, city budgets include 40% to 80% allotted to police departments. And we know that police solve less than 2% of all major crimes. They're not good at preventing it and they escalate most uh, situations. So we have a 10 step proposal to actually defund them until zero. Um, I can read over uh, just the main parts of it and then people can go to the website 10projustice.com to read into the details. So demand number one is to defund the police and reallocate resources to impacted communities. Two, demilitarize the police. Three, eliminate discriminatory policing, prosecution, and sentencing. Four, institute complete law enforcement transparency and accountability. Five, independently investigate all police crimes and abuses of power. Six, install community representation, oversight, and safety measures. 
Seven, end strategic counter-protest violence. Eight, apologize and provide reparations. Nine, end the war on drugs. And 10, end carceral punishment. In every step on the website, we go into the details with the laws uh, currently on the books that empower this system and how we can go about disempowering it. We've made headway by banning the use of tear gas uh, in California through a ballot measure. This has been a long battle. I've been an activist long before we co-founded 10, uh, 10 Demands and I uh, massively participated in legalizing marijuana in California. So decriminalizing drugs would be a massive step because as we know, uh, the most marginalized communities are always targeted by this war that is designed ineffectively to impose morality. And when we can keep drugs even out of the prison system, it is completely not possible in a free society. Uh, abolition to me means that we start relying on each other and form strong communities where uh, we don't rely on punitive uh, recourses to something that damages society. It focuses on restorative justice, uh, not retribution. It provides services in order to prevent crime. We know that uh, crime is largely driven by poverty. As a matter of fact, over 75% of people currently in jail have never even been convicted of a crime. They simply can't afford bail. So these are simple things that we can do now by uh, eliminating cash bail in order to dent the power of the police uh, state and start implementing actions towards uh, an abolitionist society. The details of how an abolitionist society will work vary from group to group and can be decided by communities locally. But the most important factor is that we support each other instead of uh, giving away our power and all the funding to a punitive system that's been over-militarized and treats citizens like the enemy. Yeah, we, we co-founded 10 Demands around the time of the George Floyd protest. And we wanted to have a clear step to action that activists have where they can make real change in their communities. Personally, looking at national politics, uh, I don't think a lot of change is going to happen on like the Senate level, for example. But there are a lot of change that abolitionists can put push for that is listed on our 10 demands because politics is mostly local. So there are real change that we can push without relying on politicians by following the steps of the 10 demand program. And as abolitionists, and this is the last thing I'm gonna say, we truly believe that when you provide the material needs for people, that is the best form of public safety. The social contract provides public, uh, safety and assurance by the government. That is not what we provide right now. And as abolitionists, we envision a society where people have healthcare, housing, a living wage, and quality of life. Because as abolitionists, as humanists, we really believe once you provide that, uh, quote unquote, crime will go down. And as crime continues to go down, you have the giant fascist violent police force that no longer justifies itself. And that sets us on the path of abolition. So hopefully that gets into a little bit of the strategy as well, because if we implement the programs the way they're supposed to be implemented, we can really get to a, a place as a society where we don't need uh, the capitalist thugs in uniform, right? So that's all I have. Thanks so much, Nick. 
Uh, I want to open it up to Nikki now. Yeah, appreciate you. Appreciate everything that everyone has said so much. It's um, very powerful. Um, I'll say, I just want to like start by saying, and I know Alex touched on some of this, but there's been just so many um, people in the work for so long around abolition that have really created a foundation, a ladder even, um, you know, really powerful tools uh, and language, uh, narrative, so much uh, networking strength uh, has come from um, individuals and organizations. And so just a huge shout out, of course, to Critical Resistance um, and Curb, uh, who uh, just have, you know, been great leaders for a long time. Um, and helping support uh, local fights and across the country really, but here in California for sure. And so just wanna shout that out in terms of like, what is abolition to me? Oh gosh, it's been so good to hear and learn from so many people for so long um, about it. And so I'll just say, you know, um, like Alex said, a political vision and strategy, um, but also a way of living, right? Um, in relationship with one another and what in and in what relation to the state. Um, you know, building the world that we really need um, is what I would also define as abolition, um, you know, which includes, of course, like mutual aid, but also like dual power locally um, uh, in, with, you know, state institutions still in existence. Um, uh, as we work to <clears throat> undermine their power, build our own, subvert what the status quo oppression um, into cooperative uh, power building amongst communities. And so uh, for decarcerate and for mental health first, our strategies and scope look like local organizing. All right, Alex, Nikki, Rebecca, Nick, Zoya, hey, we are here. Thanks so much for your patience. Let me open it back up uh, to Nikki as we cut you off there at the end. Sure. And if you just joined, right, we are forming our, uh, our definition of abolition, which we will now work with for the rest of our panel while explaining the beautiful work we are actually doing in the communities. Uh, awesome. And I think I was following, I was and curve end of definition of abolition, moving into how we work on it here locally. Um, and was saying that we do a lot of local advocacy that looks like, um, you know, mobilizing folks to board meetings, but it also looks like community education, uh, community um, you know, it's been a little hard during COVID to have like community, like social events, but um, just that building of community. Uh, it certainly, certainly looks like local coalition building. So finding who has affinity, who has shared vision, who has shared goals and getting those coalitions moving. So we've been able to partner and help start multiple coalitions in town, um, including the newly formed Community Care First Coalition, uh, and the uh, People's Budget Sacramento, and as, along with a, a few others. Um, and of course, working on uh, like with larger um, 
state and national coalitions. So things like CURB, uh, Care First California, and the National No New Jails. Um, so thinking about that work from all the way are like, uh, and, and probably most importantly in terms of like how we do the work um, in centering impacted leadership, uh, we have a fairly robust inside outside organizing program. And so we do letters and visits and phone calls and just launched a hotline. Uh, and so we carry on uh, communication related to um, what's going on for folks inside, just personal um, communications also help with uh, to what extent we can with what issues um, that they have. Our, our jail is under federal consent decree. And so we work on conditions um, and we study conditions and we learn firsthand conditions uh, from those folks that we're in communication with and um, direction around um, how, what, what are the, what are the most pressing problems, right? Um, because we know sometimes when they work to when they work to like improve the jail, they just end up pouring money and pouring money and pouring money. And everybody in that jail knows money is not what it needs. It needs reprioritization. Uh, it, it needs significantly less people in it. Um, and of course it needs to shut down, um, but that's, you know, an, that's another step. And so uh, folks inside uh, have been just like really supportive um, and driving, uh, you know, the heart of our campaigns. And so I think that's a, a huge part. Uh, I'll say working on the budget um, and budget advocacy and working with partners in the community to get involved in budget advocacy, doing budget education um, with our community. You know, like someone mentioned earlier, but here in Sacramento, 72% of our uh, overall budget of the general fund goes to our carceral system. So that includes courts and the district attorney, the jail, um, and the sheriff's department, and 6% of that is the public defender's office. So the only um, part of that process that's legally mandated to, you know, fight for these individuals uh, gets that teeny tiny uh, share. And so like someone mentioned earlier, when that big of a chunk of the general fund is going to that system, and so we incarcerate about 40,000 people a year here in Sacramento County, and what that ends up being is a you know, we have about 1.5 million people, but that means 72% of our budget goes towards incarcerating that small 40,000 40, people out of our 1.5 million people in the county. Um, and so you can see the lopsided nature of that and how that doesn't leave room um, for us to have the things we need, uh, like I think Nick articulated so well about what is really needed in our community for public safety. Um, and so I won't say it again, but thanks y'all. Fabulous. And I really want to bring up something that you said, which is, you know, the, the necessity of coalition building. And this is right. This is why we are here, recognizing the intersectionality of all of our issues, um, you know, and showing up for the, the people in the frontline communities actually already doing the work. Um, so I will remind okay. folks, we have a resource list. Um, I encourage you to add um, you know, not just who you're here representing today, um, the organizations, but any other groups you're involved with in your area. Um, we really want people to continue to learn um, and support um, your work that you're talking about today. As um, I move into the rest of our questions, um, I'm going to, I want you all to, you know, question, answer the questions that you feel inclined to. Um, I also want you to, to, to encourage you if there are elements of your work that these questions do not address, 
please take the time to do so. We really want to hear from your perspective on, on what's going on and what's important. Um, so with that, our next question is, and I will put it in the chat um, as well, um, where do we begin to transform a colonial culture rooted in oppression and punitive justice to one of healing, safety, and health? Where and how do these new restorative practices begin? Um, and I'm asking this as an organizer, uh, also a community member and a parent, um, because as I'm going along here with my little one, I'm finding more and more unexamined ideas in our culture that we are born into and socialized to accept. Um, so I, I really welcome your thoughts here and who would like to start? In, in terms of transitioning to a society that we, we, we want, we need concrete, concrete steps. So in order for us to get abolition, we need to start peeling back the neoliberalism that led to this police state in the first place. So step one, let's get kids out of schools. And then let's have a conversation about eliminating the regressive fines and fees that the police impose on the working class. We are so in, in, entrenched in the police state as it is right now. Most people will be turned off if we just say, oh, we, we just want abolition, abolish anything right now that the people actually need to see steps that could be taken to accomplish a goal. And then once they see that something is attainable, uh, uh, then you can get more people on board. Uh, for example, where I live in Missouri, my number one concern is the increase of cops in school, especially since the Uvalde police shooting. Missouri legislators immediately went to work to put more cops in school. So when we talk about the road to abolition, we need to start looking at like real uh, pressure we can put on local governments right now that can make change in people's lives. And then once people see these small changes in our lives, that can help them uh, get closer to our overall goal of abolition. So I start there, I'll, open, I'll, I'll pass it back to the panel if you, anyone have any thoughts. Um, I can go. Yeah, I really love everything you just said, um, Nick. And I think when like when we have a lot of these conversations at Poder, what we talk a lot about is like uplifting and centering like the voices of directly impacted people, right? Like we know directly impacted people are often um, have been the ones black indigenous people that have suffered the most from colonization and colonialism and the this culture of capitalism and patriarchy. Um, and a lot of these values that didn't exist in their in their communities, in their cultures, before their land was stolen or before genocide or before this violence. And when we're talking about how do you shift this culture, we talk a lot about also meeting these people where they are, right? Like Nick said, you have to show people that like these little things can be can be one and can be one together. Um, and a lot of times when we're having these discussions, even with our own our own people there's just so much that because of our education system has been left out they don't even understand that they're they have rights right we do a lot of like know your rights workshops with our folks right just this basic level of you as a person have dignity as a human and you have inherent rights and you have the power to fight for those rights and I think 
because colonialism has operated from such a top-down approach, even thinking about in this nonprofit industrial complex that exists, right? So often it's like the board or the leaders or the academics or whatever. And it we're going down from like top of the ladder down type of a thing, telling people, well, we think this is what you need, right? Or we think this is how we should go about it. And instead we're like, actually, what do you guys think you need? Like, what are the things that matter to you? Like uh, we have a police uh, free schools campaign that our youth organizers work on. And when we talk about the resources that they need and they actually in 2020, um, they ended the police contract at the largest um, high school district here in Arizona, but in Phoenix. And one of the things that I have heard over and over from these youth is our bathrooms are disgusting. We hate that we have no windows. It feels like a prison, right? Some Someone that's older or someone that is looking at this from a more theoretical framework might say, oh, you guys need this in the education system, right? But these black and brown and indigenous youth that are in this school are actually saying, this is what we need, right? And so shifting away from telling people what they need and what and how they should act or what they should do, because that's rooted in colonialism, right? Of keeping people in their place, keep telling people how they should operate. Um, and that just kind of goes into narrative shift and political ed and things like that. But I'll, I'll pass it over to someone else. I don't want to take too much time. Um, I can go real quick on this question because uh, what folks have said already uh, is really great. Um, so, you know, uh, in terms of alternatives to harm, um, I would say that there there exists and has existed alternatives to dealing with harm that don't rely on the PIC already. Um, so communities here and around the world where there really is no recourse for harm from the state um, that have built networks of care and accountability, we could really be learning from them. Um, so that kind of global aspect. Um, but the reality is harm comes from our conditions. So shifting conditions, right? Like, like Nick said, um, making sure folks' needs are met, as simple as that, um, providing them with the language and tools for learning and unlearning, um, like Rebecca had said. Um, but you know, also learning how folks already are dealing with harm without policing, because uh, uh, these communities never had the ability to rely on police. Um, so learning from them, and, and I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing, uh, um, another member of CR, Kamala Walton, who always says, like, politicizing the way people are already living, right? So um, that's all I'll say about that. Thanks. I welcome Zoya uh, and Nikki to address this question, or we can move on to the next. Oh, well, on, on our website, we also have a separate tab for the steps we need to take uh, in order to implement this. And I'm going to read from step one. Uh, acknowledge how deeply ingrained the conjoined concepts of crime and punishment are in our society, and how this was constructed during the age of reason and the rise of capitalism. Initially, as a reform by Protestants and Quakers to replace with penitence, the barbaric earlier forms of public capital punishment like stoning, hangings, and amputations. Today, as Harvard sociologist Deva Pager has said, prison is no longer a rare or extreme event among our nation's most marginalized groups. Rather, it has now become a normal and anticipated marker in the transition to adulthood. Indeed, one in every three Black boys and one in every six 
uh, Hispanic boys born today will end up in prison. This is no accident. We have a crisis in over criminalization. Uh, our criminal legal system was set up to enforce slavery and has been used ever since to over police and over arrest people of color, especially black people. More than 80% of all arrests are for low level nonviolent offenses and conduct related to poverty. Knowing these statistics, it is easy for us to at least address this number of uh, the major arrests happening uh, with other alternatives uh, that focus on restorative justice and services that these people need. The cost of uh, jailing somebody equates to the same amount that it would take to house and feed and educate them. If we simply reallocate the same budgets to supporting people, we won't have the same crime problem. And a lot of things uh, are labeled as crime uh, that shouldn't be, such as homelessness. And we're seeing in real time laws being passed that criminalize uh, people just not having a home further. So we have to address it from a legislative angle, but we also have to show up for our communities. And what the Black Panthers were doing with their breakfast program was very powerful because you're building solidarity and you're building strength. You're, uh, then from that, you can form tenant uh, unions and strikes, but it's very important to start just with food because it's meeting a basic need that people have that right now is being neglected. We have 40 million food insecure Americans, 13 million of them children, and Biden just ended the school lunch program. So this need is very urgent. Uh, and the, what the Black Panthers were doing were going to local businesses, demanding space, demanding leftover food, which uh, in this capitalist wasteful system, billions of uh, dollars in food are thrown out every day. As a nonprofit corporation, you can ask for that food to be donated and then redistribute that food to community. So uh, another thing to implement is community gardens where you start to grow your own food. It's a valuable skill to have. It's very fulfilling and the quality of food you get out of it is not surpassed by anything on supermarket shelves. It also creates independence from the system. So I would say to start by building community um, as the fundamental cornerstone to anything else that we wanna enact. And I suppose I'll just add one thing. I know we <clears throat> everybody has covered it so beautifully. Um, I'll say a, a step one for me is like helping folks acknowledge the colonial roots, um, <clears throat> the violence that came from that. I think folks, uh, and, and, that, and that remains not just in the legacy, but in the actual practice of our systems. And so I think people sometimes forget or, you know, people, I won't say what people do, um, but I'll say that narratives <clears throat> don't always, they still give deference to incarceration and policing as safety and, uh, and American ideals and foundation as uh, like democracy and progressive uh, in, you know, Western civilization and history. So we really have to, uh, there's been so much work done and I'll say what others said before um, is that really getting to the root of um, who has been impacted and making sure their voices are not just elevated, but listened to um, both by policymakers, but also ourselves and our organizing. Um, and being able to move uh, in rhythm um, 
with those uh, directions uh, that folks are moving in who are most impacted. And then um, also want to shout out the um, All African Revolutionary People's Party, um, which is a very awesome uh, group that does do like community safety and defense trainings um, and gets down to a real local level around what does community safety um, look like? How is it implemented? How do you do that in your neighborhood with your neighbors? And so it was a really powerful training um, and I, I certainly suggest it to anybody. They're, um, they're a really open organization in terms of they want to share this information and um, and it's powerful and you should pay them for it if you can if you have the means um, yeah I'll stop there thank you so much and we will be sure to include a link as well as the link to contribute to them financially um, thank you so much okay let's move on uh, to our next question how do we use a framework and center principles of abolition in other organizing spaces? We're here talking about a lot of different areas this weekend, climate, labor, healthcare, housing, um, so many things. So if you could, you could give us some takeaways of how to you know, take that into these other spaces we're working into. And again, I'm gonna allow you all to self-select here. I'll jump in quickly first this time. Um, I'll, you know, I think right now we're all kind of obviously stuck uh, in this, um, you know, like fascist action of the Supreme Court um, and thinking about, you know, we really do have to start thinking about what is the implementation of that mean, right? Because it's not just, oh, now it's illegal, but then laws have to be enforced. Um, and who is going to enforce those laws? Um, how are, you know, what are, what lengths are district attorneys going to go to? Um, you know, this now becomes just like such a localized issue in terms of criminalization of bodily autonomy. And we, um, you know, how is your data going to be sold differently now? There are just so many um, kind of implications now that we're all, you know, hopefully forced to think about. And I think the same can sort of be seen or drawn down on any um, like major issue of our time. We can think about climate uh, and think about how primarily um, our government's readiness uh, has been in like crowd control um, practices and um, not really in adaptation or, or severe you know, carbon reduction. Um, they've taken, you know, they've heavily, you even heard Nancy Pelosi say it, like she was asked why, uh, why do we continue to fund the Pentagon when it's the largest carbon emitter in the world? And she just pivoted directly to, well, there are other national security issues around climate that we have to worry about that the military is, um, you know, and she wouldn't, she wouldn't, she, she stopped short just of saying, um, like migration and mass protests, but it's like she caught herself saying it in her head and stopped, um, but we know the plan that they have for us um, is, is violence, um, like control, continued pushing to the margins. Um, someone said it so beautifully earlier, Millie, I think it was you, um, just that they don't, they don't, we are pushed all the way 
you know, when we are, you know, ground, you know, resilience lasts so long and we're ground all the way to dust and die. So there's not, you know, we really this, um, not to be a downer, um, but our, the necessity for us to take care of one another um, really makes itself manifest when you see how, how left behind we are and how the only response they have is policing and incarceration um, and, and coercion and control. And so just like pulling that out in every topic, um, if, if possible. Can you uh, reframe the question again? Absolutely. Uh, how do we use a framework and center principles of abolition in other organizing spaces? Um, this weekend is bringing, you know, folks focused on a whole, whole uh, spectrum of different issues, and we want to, you know, be able to give them some seeds uh, to take. Yeah, that's a good question. That's that's a good question, and I brought it up when I first uh, started my uh, talking. When I brought up how police are cracking the heads of uh, Roe v. Wade protesters right now, and when I do my show on revolutionary blackout, I talk about police issues almost all the time, because you can connect them to almost every single issue. Once you understand that the expansion of our prison industrial complex and policing is tied to everything, it's tied to capitalists controlling their power, you can connect it to all the issues. Now, to directly answer your question, obviously we all know the big story, the big happening in the country right now. Um, unfortunately, the police continue to prove us right so every time there is a uh, mass resistance, you see people like, I saw clips, um, we're going to play it on Revolutionary Blackout here soon, of the LAPD using excessive force. Uh, obviously, on protests, I've seen a few videos, which was pretty uh, traumatizing, right? So this is a situation where we take people who may not be as far left as us on policing, and we like, see, guys, you see how they're here to uh, maintain established order, even if established order is immoral. So the first steps that the Democratic Party did on, on when Roe v. Roe v. Wade was struck down was to provide extra security for the Supreme Court. Now, that's an educating moment for people. So even as the far-right even evangelical fascists take people's rights away, the number one priority of the Democrats is to provide extra security for the Supreme Court. Why? Because they are class loyal and they will always uphold this prison industrial complex system over what's right. So you, to answer a question, you just take this opportunity to spread awareness and because you can connect this to what's happening right now and and, general, and generally any happenings like the expansion of homelessness. Eric Adams is using his expanded NYPD police force to wage a war against homeless people in New York. So that's just another way to connect the issue if you are doing homeless uh, uh, work uh, organizing in New York. You can connect that to that issue as well. So hopefully that kind of conveys how you can connect those issues together. Um, because obviously whenever there's an authoritarian action done by the state, they have to expand the, the police and the prison because there has to be an enforcement mechanism of their immoral decision. So uh, hopefully that kind of answers the question. I'll pass it to you guys. Uh, okay. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I can, yeah, I can go a little bit. So earlier I, I had mentioned um, 
that a lot of our work is focused on the Polimigra um, and what that means um, as being a city that's very close to the border, being a city that has lots of undocumented, documented mixed status families um, here and primarily like Latinx um, families and where we do our work on the west side of Phoenix, that's, a, that's the majority of the folks we work with. Um, and in 2017, we did a community survey of 10,000 people and it was mostly this population. And when you would ask them, um, if they felt safe around the police, like very specific questions, like people would say they cried every time they saw a police car. People would say that they immediately, like their body would get tense or that they would feel sick, all of these different things. And then when you ask them if we needed police, they would say, well, of course, like they protect us, they keep us safe. Yet everything that they were saying was the opposite of their experience in with policing. And, and Arizona in 2010, SB 1070 passed, which was essentially any person that was stopped by law enforcement, if they were seen as, um, there was a list of things that based on that, you could ask them about their documentation status. And if they couldn't provide that, then more than likely they were, they were going to call ICE. And some of the things on that last list could be, oh, they have a sticker from this local Spanish radio station. They have a rosary hanging in their window. Um, and so when that immigration mobilization started happening, it was mostly like for status, right? There wasn't a lot of talk about how people had been keeping themselves safe. This was also around the time where Joe Arpaio, who was the Maricopa County Sheriff at the time, was literally hunting um, undocumented immigrants, would announce these raids that he was going to have. He would go into jobs. And in that time, these communities were keeping each other safe. There would be these phone calls like, don't go to work today. I heard this. Or did you know about this raid? Or he was here yesterday. And so as the more that the immigration fight happened, especially here in Phoenix, the more that well, that in action realized, oh, this is very much tied to policing because in 27, was it 2017, I believe, they realized, well, if we can pass municipal IDs, then the cops can't call ICE. And then they took it, it passed council, they worked for almost two years to get it. And then Phoenix PD had the power to say, we won't accept that as a valid form of, of identification. And also, when they started researching, Phoenix PD was the largest deportation system in Arizona. They were the ones calling ICE more than anyone else um, and driving that force. So as we've had these conversations with our people to really make them think critically about, are police making you safe? Does the state actually make you safe? Do you think getting status is actually gonna keep you safe from these violent systems, right? You can get citizenship, but if all of our money is going to policing and surveillance and these violent carceral systems, and you can't put food on the table, you can't get a job that provides for your family. And on top of that, if you're an undocumented immigrant, a lot of times the type of jobs that you're getting, like you, this is about labor justice. This is about economic justice. That is a form of enslavement that people are working for these wages and in these conditions that are horrible because they're just trying to keep their head down, be the quote unquote, like ideal immigrant. Um, and they're not really living safe lives and they're not necessarily living thriving lives because they're being denied so many resources and not just them, but 
all of the community like communities of color and these working class communities in Phoenix. And so that was a huge shift in at least with our people tying immigration and policing together and what that actually means for our communities and the resources and the neglect and how all of that ties into each other. Even when you think about climate justice in Phoenix, there are certain zip codes that if you grow up in those zip codes, I grew up in one of them, you are like, I think the 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 life expectancy difference than like a upper middle class white area of the city is like seven years uh, less of a of a life expectancy because the air is really bad because of all these different things um, policing pollution um, and so yeah so the immigration has been a really eye opening way to think about abolition and what that means for that community and and when we're organizing um, in those communities and I'll pass it. Thank you so much, Rebecca, especially for bringing up S SB 1070 and just, you know, to underline at the top of that list of, you know, legal, acceptable reasons to search people was was the color of, of their skin um, very, very blatantly. Um, and I also want to open it up to Alex and Zoya if they want to address that question. Otherwise, we're going to move on to our second. I think Alex was on stack to go next. Sure. Thanks. Yeah, I'll be quick. Um, I, I really love this question. Um, uh, you know, how do we organize it in, within different sectors? So I, I touched on it earlier, um, and, and Nikki spoke really well on this. But we critical resistance is a political organization, so we're not um, a, a mass-based building organization where um, you know there are those organizations where the goal is to get as many members as possible. Um, CR is not that, but so to, to build power, we need to work within coalitions um, of folks that are mass-based building organizations of folks in different sectors, um, because, because uh, as Nick mentioned, uh, the PIC touches every aspect of our society. So uh, our struggle needs to also activate each aspect of the society. So um, it, you can, I, I included in the uh, resources um, uh, prior to the, the call, um, our abolitionist toolkit, which includes uh, seven easy steps. Um, it's one of the first tools that CR created back in 2004, so the toolkit's a little dated, but I think it's still really valid. Um, but these seven steps are, are, you can ask yourself in, you know, as a person, but also apply it to the organization you work in. Um, you know, uh, you know, if you're a teacher, uh, thinking of the, the, the NIMBY step, not in my, my backyard, like, how does that apply to schools um, and the PIC, right? So that can be applied to a lot of different sectors. So. Um, yeah, that's all I'll say about on that, but it's a, it's a really great question. Thank you. And if you're just joining us, I will remind you that all of the resources mentioned will be compiled. And I also put in the chat um, the, the, the study um, that Poder in Action did. Um, if you want to look more into that, um, is incredible. Um, I, okay, let's move on to um, the last question this evening. Um, which is, what are some of the first steps and how would you suggest folks begin to support the organizing and reallocation of resources into community services that actually keep people safe, like housing, education, food, and healthcare from the institutions not serving us, such as the police and ICE? And on top of that, how can this work in more rural communities where national groups do not yet have established working groups 
and what role do you see mutual aid playing? I will chat this question and open it up to our panelists. Thank you so much. You want to take this one, Zoya? Or Nick? Go ahead. So the question was uh, first steps and how we can get people to uh, support reallocating funds that go to the police to actual social services that will provide safety and security. Um, we actually, we made a lot of ground over the last few years, especially since the start of the George Floyd protest. It just, we got to break through the propaganda and how people have been trained to think under our neoliberal system. So I always refer to the social contract where we both have public safety and assurance and our society right now do not provide that. You cannot say you provide public safety when there is a giant homeless population. You can't say you provide public safety when there's so many people who are food insecure and live in poverty. And there are people who've been programmed in such a way that honestly, when you, once you put it that way, it can click to people that when we have a functioning society, abolition only makes the most sense. And I actually have a lot of success talking to people who call themselves fiscal, fiscal conservatives. Um, it takes a little bit knowing your, your, your stuff, but you bring up the fact that the NYPD alone spends three times more than the DPRK military budget. We, the NYPD uh, police budget is similar to the military budget of Iraq and Iran. I, people can't explain this kind of stuff. For what? And if you're one of the people that are concerned, if you're like a suburban Y mom and you're concerned with rising crime rates, all you got to do is flip the question on them. If you worry about crime, why are we spending so much money on the police when crime is not going down? Wouldn't it be more efficient to tackle crime by handling the root cause, the fact that people don't have the material needs? And honestly, just do, I know there are people that are partisan and they won't budge, but when you talk to people who actually care about solving these issues and you plant these seeds into them, it gets them thinking. And that's how we uh, build and uh, build a movement and cause social change by planting these seeds to people who mean it well. We're not gonna win over the streamers, but the people who can understand the logic and arguments, we make slow inroads with them. So did I, did I address everything with the question? Was there anything I missed? Hopefully I'll address everything. Fantastic. Thank you for opening that up. Let me hop in after Nick. Um, so I think mutual aid is really important. And a lot of people uh, mistakenly think that mutual aid is just about donating money when mutual aid is really an exchange of services within your community. So if someone uh, is a hairstylist, they cut your hair, you can watch their kids or offer tutoring or someone can mend clothes. It's these services and our specialties. Somebody's a mechanic, somebody's a cook, where we start taking care of each other and it builds power independent of the system. So mutual aid networks are really important. There's mutual aid networks in practically every city in America possibly not in every rural community. But what I tell people all the time is to go search for one, more than likely already one exists and you can form community and organize from there. And if there isn't one, start one. 
uh, just donation of old clothes, it, it's so huge. First of all, it's a, a massive source of pollution when we throw our clothes away, which we do more than almost any other country on earth. Second of all, you could be clothing somebody, especially when winter months are coming. So there are several ways uh, to organize. And I think uh, as panelists already mentioned, all of these things are interconnected. Uh, that our housing and food and uh, abolition issues are all tied in because abolition is ultimately focused on meeting the needs of the people. So whatever uh, faction of that uh, you participate in, you're really organizing this multifaceted movement. And I think we need an inside and outside strategy. Unfortunately, we've seen the inside strategy fail so often that many people are justifiably hopeless in approaching anything through our electoral system. Um, I am of that mind myself, but I don't want to neglect wins we've had in California by legalizing marijuana. We've gone tens of thousands of people out of prison um, and countless more will not go to jail. And I had a lot of friends that were uh, personally impacted by this. So to me, it matters, even though it's crumbs, even though we deserve more, it still was a meaningful uh, benchmark legislation. We also ended cash bail in California, which is another huge win. So when we apply pressure, uh, we do get wins from the system. But the best way to apply pressure is action in the streets and uh, strikes. And we're seeing so many great gains in the labor movement over the last couple of years uh, that I think it's really important to support striking workers. There are strike funds available for workers uh, and we build power by bringing the system to a halt by stopping uh, the thing they care about most, which is profit. So strikes and direct action in the streets and some things that would probably be considered less legal to advocate for. But all I can say towards that is that um, the system is working for the ruling class and they have no interest in giving us anything. Uh, that's why we call them demands and behind the demands there has to be action. And we have a lot of power in our numbers and solidarity is our greatest weapon. Uh, and to uh, some of the other points that were brought up, I wanna make sure we say uh, the statistics, which are that police kill three people per day and that black people are about five times more likely as white people to be unfairly stopped by police. And I'm gonna close uh, with just a, a, a few of the people that have been targeted by this police violence. Uh, George Floyd was murdered by a police officer over a suspicious $20 bill. Eric Garner was killed uh, while police arrested him for selling cigarettes. Deborah Danner was killed by police during a mental health crisis. Police murdered Duante Wright after stopping him for driving with expired plates. Philando Castile was killed after he was pulled over because his brake lights were out. And the list goes on. A lot of these situations don't require over-militarized police to show up. We can have uh, social services ex expanded, wellness checks. This is all in our demands detailed how we can be addressing these things outside of carceral punishment and simply by expanding social services to actually meet community needs and keep us safe instead of feeding into a capitalist system that now uh, relies on prison labor for millions of uh, corporations uh, to profit off of.
Thank you so much uh, for also bringing in that really important piece, right? Is that like slavery is current right now within our prison systems. Welcoming um, Alex, if you're ready. Sure, sure. thanks. Yeah, um, no, we don't have too much time left, but this is a great question about first steps and, and maybe for communities that, that aren't touched by some of our national organizing. Um, so just going to give a little context to some of the resources I hope will be sent out after this. I, I included um, uh, an, uh, a 17-minute video, which is Advice for New Abolitionists. It was kind of anchored by one of our uh, CR's co-founders, Rachel Herzing. Um, it's really great. I think with the um, uh, proliferation of abolition as a concept, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, but it's also really important for us to kind of um, really like lay out what that, what it really means, the commitment. Um, to the politic. Um, so that's a really great video. Um, we also put out in because of the, you know, uh, events of, of 2020, uh, an abolishing policing toolkit, um, which is 27 pages, um, I think. Um, and then there's like a, there's a how to build a, a, a defund police kind of like campaign, like worksheet. So so you can just start where you are. Um, and I hope that will help, you know, all the conditions are different. But as you can see, they're, they're kind of similar uh, in a lot of our our locations. Um, also, uh, CR has um, kind of our flagship uh, resources, our reformist reforms versus abolitionist um, steps. Um, I think especially in, in blue places like California, um, we are offered a lot of reforms. So like the language is being used for, uh, you know, uh, reforms. But a lot of times, like Nikki said, uh, 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 reforming the jail often means like providing more funding to it. So this is a really great tools to help us, um, you know, look at any kind of uh, reform on our, that comes to our table and say, hey, is that, this is actually gonna, is this look good right now? And if it's gonna cause trouble in the long run or is it only gonna affect some, but not others, uh, like Rebecca had said earlier. Um, and, you know, an example of that, uh, Zoe had mentioned the elimination of cash bail. There was a prop here in California, Prop 25, which sought to eliminate cash bail, but it, it was kind of replaced by this kind of really racist risk matrices. So we had to kind of take a principled stand on that and say, you know, we're all for eliminating cash bail, but we can kind of see that this is actually going to be worse to rely on these kind of like algorithms that just are based off of really racist, um, you know, and classist conditions that exist. Um, so I hope you, you guys can look at those resources and I'm super excited to to read um, um, the resources and, and dive into the 10 steps as well. Um, as far as mutual aid goes, I, I won't talk too much on that, but you know, it is really important for uh, to build interdependence and accountability within our community. Um, you know, uh, again, it has to be coupled with that dismantling piece. I think um, CR does have a um, uh, our kind of internal mutual aid for uh, friends and other organizers called the Zachary Project, uh, named after a beloved CR member who uh, died in a uh, really unexpected way. And it just kind of reminded us that, um, you know, we can't fight if we're not surviving. So meeting, you know, our needs uh, um, and keeping people alive is, is really important for the fight. So mutual aid is, I think, a uh, key in that. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Alex. Um, Rebecca, Nikki, welcome your thoughts on this question. No, you can go. I feel like there's already been so much that has been touched on. I'm like, do I have? Yeah. 
anything else that I, that I want to add. And if you don't feel like right. you want to address this question and you had a final thought that you thought wasn't that you thought was important, um, please, please, I, you know, I welcome that now too. Yeah, I, I appreciate this question a lot. And I think I, maybe what I'll touch on is the rural organizing piece since it hasn't been too fleshed out. And I'll say, um, for one, of course, there's a responsibility on national organizations. And, you know, the question said where they may not have chapters, um, but to, to think about rural strategies. Uh, and I'll, I'll start there. But I think for individuals in rural communities, um, it really can start with affinity. And of course, by that, I mean <clears throat> friendships and people that you know or trust um, and have shared values with. Um, I'll say that Decarcerate Sacramento started with like eight to 12 people who knew each other or were within one separation of knowing each other and, um, and referred by a trusted friend and just started with a meeting, got called together um, to talk about uh, planned jail expansion um, that we were able to shut down, right? Because we started with a small group um, that had a commitment to shutting it down. And so uh, I would also say for rural communities, issue-based organizing is really powerful. Um, so thinking about what is happening in this community, what is happening in your community that is harming your community that you personally um, feel uh, compelled to dismantle. And I'll say that this in rural communities uh, has been really powerful around um, climate justice and uh, industrial pollution, um, uh, mass agriculture, industrial agriculture, things like that, where rural communities have really been able to come together and say, not in our community. Um, and so looking at those models where that has worked, if you're a person in those communities um, and really uh, understanding that it's about um, communication uh, and really hearing from folks uh, what what's the issue going on and how do we um, fight it together. Um, and that's really uh, a powerful rural organizing tool. I think folks touched on mutual aid as a powerful stepping stone. And also it was a question that we skipped. So I think that's why people touch on, but it is such a powerful stepping stone that interdependency is part of building dual power, right? Um, we can't leave the system behind if we can't take care of each other. Uh, and so we really need to, to, to be developing those tools. Um, both in our in our families, our communities, uh, locally, and in larger networks. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is familiarity with local um, political dynamics. Just try to get familiar. Um, it's an, it's a first step. It's an annoying step. It's definitely a radicalizing step when you really like pay attention and see over a course of time how little they care and how much they. They care about um, being ambassadors of, of neoliberal business policies and, and um, old school white supremacy based policing. Um, you're, you know, it, it moves towards action, it agitates, and, um, and it also helps you see the landscape you're in, and the landscape you're in is really important. Um, and it's going to be uh, really influential in how you move strategically in your organizing, because you have to organize your political electeds as well. You have to organize the administrators of your, you know, county uh, doing that work. If, you know, if that's part of the type of work you want to do, you don't have to do that. Um, but as part of a larger campaign or strategy, that's generally a, a, a part. And so becoming familiar um, is, is a good tool. 
So, and you can do that by watching the meetings, reading other people, check in with orgs who've been paying attention for a long time, ask for backgrounds, um, get, get that, get that in. Um, but also, you know, just watching a couple municipal meetings will really, will really grind your gears and I'll end it there. <laughs> Thanks, Nikki. And you know, not, you know, this is of course civic engagement and paying attention in meetings is so important too, but getting to know the political landscape of your neighborhood might just be making toilet paper available to folks or, you know what I mean, having a, a potluck and starting to meet the folks. So I just encourage you to, to really get creative. It doesn't have to be some fancy or formal process to start that, you know, communication. Um, I, I'll, let's pass it to Rebecca. Um, yeah, I'm so glad that Nikki brought that up um, at the end, right? Uh, like, it made me just think of, we talk a lot about power mapping um, when we're talking about the, especially the people that drive policy at the, we work mostly at the municipal level here in Phoenix and kind of knowing our audience when we're trying to allocate for different resources or show up and push for things to happen. And what we have seen is that if we know our audience and our strategy becomes a lot stronger and the way we can mobilize people and the type of political education we need to give them so that they can show up and understand why it's important for them to show up is super important because we could just target everyone on our city council um, because it's the entire city council, or we can target the people that we know are the flip-floppy people, right? That they could be the one vote that is maybe gonna shift a change. And again, like we know that by engaging in the state, we're not necessarily like creating abolition, but we are reducing harm. And if we can provide more resources for people by engaging in that way, while at the same time, we're still building behind that. So like something that we're doing is it's called the Pueblo's like people's budget. And so we're building our own city budget um, based on community surveys and community organizing and what people are saying we need. Um, and this came out of years of conversations um, and through this work that we've been doing, it used to be us just showing up to city council saying, don't give more police, uh, don't give more funding to the police, but we weren't actually giving concrete examples or programming or um, solutions. And they are not creative or invested enough to come up with those. But if you hand it to them on a silver platter and then you... Uh, like send it to your local news and you're like, hey, there's all these other things. All of a sudden, right? They're like, oh, okay, maybe we uh, should do this. Like for instance, for ARPA funds in Phoenix, um, they tried to do like a little bit of a participatory budgeting uh, program for the general budget. And then when it came to ARPA, they, when we started talking to people within city council, it was very clear because this is what they said. They had no plan for that money. They were just going to throw it wherever they decided. And so once again, we, we thought about who's our audience, who's gonna be affected by this, who are the most vulnerable, who are gonna be impacted by this lack of planning, by this lack of vision. And then in the end, we were able to make sure that there was no ARPA funds that were given to police because the first round of COVID emergency funding, a bunch of it went to uh, police bonuses and police raises and back pay for, for the police from uh, 2020 and the protests and things like that. And so in that we were like, these are the programs that we need that you need to invest in. And we just gave it to them, um, which it wasn't our job, but 
Um, we know that if we come a little bit more prepared with those things and we question them on why they haven't done so, they look really bad. <laughs> Um, and it shows the power that we have, that we came up with that idea, and now they're including it in this budget. Um, so yeah, I'll just, I'll end it on that. I am so thrilled and honored to be in this virtual space with you all. I've been such a huge fan of all of your work for so long. So actually um, having this opportunity um, to bring about this conversation, this space has been extraordinary. Everybody who is listening, we are going to chat. Um, the websites of the organizations that are present today will also chat a spreadsheet that contains um, links that they've shared as well as donate pages and cash apps, because this is a big way that we can, as um, you know, outsiders contribute to the work that's being done. And if you walk away with anything today, please do walk away with those in the frontline communities doing the work are the ones that we need to listen to. Um, uh, and please stick around. We have a really, really great um, panel or uh, workshop coming up on legal self-defense. Right before that, we're going to have a brief pause, and I will turn it over to Jessica from our care team tonight for that. Thank you all so much again for being on this panel. We look forward to working together again in the future.